The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Our Holy Father, we thank you that we have another Lord's Day to come and worship together, that you've given us the health to be here or on one of our satellite campuses. Thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. We just sang, show us Christ, and Lord Jesus, you said the scriptures speak of you. So thank you that this book is about you from beginning to end, that you are the hero of the Bible. And so because of our study today, we ask that we might fall more in love with you, that we might know you more profoundly and walk more closely. We pray for those who are listening, who are unsure of their destiny, that as the Holy Spirit alone is able to do, for no one can come unless you said the Father draws him. We thank you that you sent the Spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we ask today that his ministry would be real in our lives, that he would speak, that he would work. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 12. Last time when we were in the Revelation, nearly a month ago, we turned a corner in that we were in the second half of the parenthetical section of these trumpets. We have seen that the book is structured with three series of sevens, seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments, and that between the sixth and seventh seal, there is a pause of time where God gives us an interlude to show us what's going on. We saw between the 6th and 7th trumpet, the trumpets are found the first 6 in chapter 8, that there was once again an interlude where after chapters 8 and 9 where he records the first 6 trumpets, he pauses again in chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14 to give us a picture of what's going on, but also a preview of what God is going to do. And so we're in the futuristic section of the book of the Revelation. And of course, the future is big business, even in America. Billions of dollars will be spent this year alone on finding out the future, largely through the new age and the occult. Yet the Bible is clear that only God knows the future and only God can write about the future with accuracy. And of course, that's why when you preach the book of Revelation, typically people come who might not always come to church, and even Christians tend to come more faithfully because they want to know the future. And really, the Bible is the only book that tells us not only how it started, but how God will complete human history as we know it. In fact, one of the divine proofs for the inspiration of the Bible is that it is the only book that gives specific prophetic references hundreds of years before they happened. 
In the Old Testament alone, there are over 300 prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus, and every single one of those were literally actually fulfilled. Neither the Koran nor the Book of Mormon nor the Hindu Vedas or any other religious book you can think of, rights of the future, has prophecy that is literally fulfilled. Only God knows the future, and the only book that God wrote is the Holy Bible. And so we're coming to a very important chapter. In fact, if you don't understand chapter 12, much of what will follow in the Revelation will be very difficult to understand. So we're not going through it fast. We're going through it slowly. It's a very, very important chapter. I want to begin reading in verse 1, though we're going to pick up largely in verses 7 through 10, where we left off last time. Revelation 12, verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days." And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. Now, if we were to take a survey this morning and ask people what the devil is like, I'm sure we would find a wide range of opinions. Some would say that there's no such thing as a devil. And so in many liberal theological pulpits today, they will describe him and in university campuses across America as a fictional character, not as real. And so this picture is a reminder of a man recently who marched in a New York City parade that the devil is just a myth. He's some creature with horns and tails who goes around poking people with a pitchfork. Still others want to make the devil something that he is not. They perceive him to be some omnipresent creature, to have more power than he really does, such that even heaven itself is threatened by him. At the other end of the spectrum, sometimes even Christian people underestimate his power, and they really don't understand what an evil foe and woe he is to the believer. Vance Havner, the great 20th century preacher now in heaven, said this, if the devil came to town in a body... You would not find him in a nightclub or a casino. You would most likely find him in some pulpit drawing his salary while denying his existence. I am reminded of one such pastor who was preaching on the meaning of the word in, I-N. 
And he said that the word in does not necessarily mean inside, but rather close to or near or roundabout. And he went on to say that Jonah was not in the belly of the great fish, but he was just roundabout or near or close to that great fish. He went on to say that uh, the devil is in and around us, but he doesn't have the influence because he's not real at all. Well, one parishioner came up after the sermon and said, you know, that service gave me great comfort today, especially your exposition on the word in. He said, I realize that the three young Hebrew men in the fire were not literally in the fire, and so they were not burned because they were just in or around or nearby the fire, and that Daniel was not devoured by the lions because he was not literally in the lion's den, but nearby. But he said, the most comforting thing to me was you refuted what all these evangelical pastors say. Because you see, I do not believe the gospel that they preach. And at least if, if I'm wrong, I won't be in hell. I'll just be in and around or nearby it. Well, listen, liberals do all kinds of mental linguistic gymnastics with words. But you can change the meaning of the word, but it doesn't change what God said. God spoke to communicate. He said what he meant, and he meant what he said. And the picture of Satan in the Bible is neither politically correct nor religiously correct in the way most Americans today even think. But what we find here in Revelation chapter 12 are some major, major truths about our foe, the evil one. And there are four dimensions to the career of Satan, two that are actually highlighted here in the 12th chapter, and the other two that we will study as we work through the Revelation. And so this morning, we want to think about Satan's two great falls. And again, if you don't understand this, and if you let your mind wander today, you're going to feel lost in some other sections of the Revelation. So I can't underscore how important this morning's message is. But the description that God gives of the evil one here is so realistic that you have to conclude this is either sheer nonsense and poppycock or it's the gospel truth. Now, if you're using your note-taking outline, I want to begin this morning with Satan's past fall from heaven. Satan's past fall from heaven. Both his past fall and his future fall are highlighted in this text this morning. If you remember last time, I know it was about a month ago, but we looked at verse 4. But we had limited time, though. The sermon was an hour and 10 minutes in this service. Uh, we had limited time, though, to expound it. And there are so many deep truths there, I don't want you to miss them. Look at verse 4. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who is about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Now, if you recall, when you come to the 12th chapter, the narrative changes again drastically. And God, again, is giving us a behind-the-scenes view as he pulls back the curtain, as he does in each of these parenthetical sections, not just to show us what is going on, but also, especially here in the 12th chapter, to give us a preview of what is going to happen, which becomes very important to our understanding the events that he's going to write about. And in chapters 12 and 13, he introduces us to seven persons, seven personages, I suppose we could say, 
that are found later on in the Revelation. So as this chart, for instance, shows, here's four that are mentioned. There's actually five in this chapter, but four in these first 12 verses where we are today. There's the woman whom we have already identified, God identified it for us as the nation of Israel. There's the dragon who's the devil. There's the male child who's the Christ or the Messiah. And then there's Michael, the archangel. But here we find these seven personages, and we studied the first one in verse 1 of chapter 12, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must take place soon, and sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. So God gives this authoritative revelation to Jesus, not that he didn't already know it, but God wants to emphasize that Jesus owns it. And Jesus, in turn, gives it to his bondservants, that's us, and he gives it through John. This is not the revelation of John. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. It's a single revelation that God gives through his servant. And if you will notice there in verse 1, the word communicated If you have the NASB with footnotes, it will bring you out to the margin and give you an alternate translation that you could render it signified. And that, in fact, that's the way the New King James and the HCSB puts it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it. The first four letters, S-I-G-N, of signified. You could say he signified it. And so this book is given in symbols and idioms and pictures. It's full of symbols all the way through. And so one of the keys to understanding the revelation is to understand its symbols. But even then, you will see in Revelation itself, and this is a classic chapter that illustrates it, is that many of the symbols are illustrated and defined within the chapter itself or through Old Testament passages. There are 404 verses in the Revelation. 300 of those verses are direct allusions to the Old Testament. But what God does is he's describing through symbols, real people, real situations, real events. And so people have asked me, Pastor, do you interpret the Bible symbolically or do you interpret it literally? And the answer is yes, I do both. That is, if it's a symbol, then you interpret what the symbol means and then you literally believe it. And so in chapter 1, we saw that the seven lampstands we're told stood for seven literal actual churches. In Revelation 12, 3, we are reading this morning about the great red dragon, which describes his ferocious and his cruel nature. And so somebody might reason, well, that, that's only a symbol. That must mean there's no devil. No, you always ask, what does the symbol stand for? And he uses symbols to describe the devil, who he tells us is the great red dragon, to help us to understand what he is like. So please understand that a symbolic uh, interpretation does not do away with a literal belief in the Word of God. And so the first player, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now we studied that the woman is not the church, Because, as we will see, this woman gives birth to the male child who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. The church does not give birth to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus forms and gives birth to his church. 
but this is a popular allegorical interpretation, which even in their allegorical approach is not consistent. But there are many theologians today who are really, whether they know it or not, are fostering a spirit of anti-Semitism to say that God is done with Israel. We call it, among other things, replacement theology. Some, especially various cult leaders, have made the woman themselves. And so I gave you an example with Mary Baker Eddy, who said she was the woman with the divine revelation. The Roman Catholic Church says the woman here is Mary. But all three views that we studied in detail are rooted in a common error and that they allegorize the book of Revelation. Now, there's a number of allegories in the Bible, less than 10, not a huge number. But still, when it's an allegory, it's apparent that it's an allegory. And so if something is allegorical, you discern what the meaning of the allegory is, and then you literally believe it. Well, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of seven stars. Now notice, the great thing about Scripture is that when there's a sign involved, it's usually identified, and that's how the verse opens. A great sign, a semion mega, we get our word big or mega from the second word, a big sign is given. Well, what does the sign refer to? Well, again, this is an allusion to a number of places, especially in Genesis, Genesis 37, 9. You probably have that written out in your margin where God illustrates through a dream that he gives Joseph, Israel, with these stars and the sun and the moon. We learn this woman could only refer to the nation of Israel, and we're told she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. That takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where there God predicts that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Now, typically when we think of seed, of course, we think of the male. But God speaks of the seed of the woman because he himself would supernaturally provide the seed as the virgin birth would take place by the Spirit of God. And so the promised seed, the promised Messiah, is a picture, it's an imagery of how God would bring Christ into the world. And so it's not surprising that in numerous Old Testament passages that Israel is pictured as being in labor. Why? Because she is the woman. Paul in the New Testament writes that Jews are Israelites to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. Paul is reminding us that Israel gave us the Messiah. And it was not with ease that Israel brought the Messiah. Israel brought the Messiah through great pain and suffering. But in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus appeared. And so I hope you understand that Israel, the nation, is God-ordained, it's God-protected, it's God-blessed, and that's why in Genesis 12, God warns, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Every Christian is blessed because of the Jewish people. Our Savior is a Jew. Every book in the Bible is written by a Jew, and God will culminate human history through the Jews, and so it's foolish for someone not to love and to pray and to bless Israel. 
And Israel needs to know that her best friends are Bible-believing evangelical Christians and replacement theology, which is going so fast in this country. And I heard a speaker that I'm about ready, Rick, to take off the radio. Replacement theology is so dangerous, so foolish, and so unfaithful to the Word of God, and knowingly or unknowingly, it is fostering a spirit that Israel really does not matter, and that is going to lead to a profound, profound anti-Semitic spirit in the last days. Now, we're introduced to another sign that appeared in heaven in verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Now, lest anyone think of this as pure fiction, or worse, yet they envision the devil with a tail and horns and a pitchfork waiting for someone to bend over, this is a sign. And in giving us this sign, he's not telling us what Satan looks like, but he's telling us what Satan acts like. And we need to know that he is, as verse 3 indicates, a great red dragon. And we don't have to know who the great red dragon is because God tells us, and the great red dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And verse 3 says that this great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his head were seven diadems. Now again, Scripture will interpret Scripture. John is giving us a snippet, a preview of things to come. And so when we come to Revelation chapter 13 and then again to the 17th chapter, we're going to learn that the horns are heads of various nations and they represent power and the heads represent wisdom, and seven represents, as we've already seen, a number of completion and fullness. And so there's coming a time, as Daniel the prophet underscores, where ten nations are going to come together in the final seven years of human history. They're going to form a coalition, and from that, one, an eleventh nation will emerge from whom the Antichrist will lead these ten nations. We'll study that in Revelation 17. But if you can't wait till we get there, go back and listen to the sermon on Daniel 7, and it might be useful to you. So while Satan wars with Israel, by sneak preview and with greater detail to follow, we're going to see that the ultimate war is with the Lord Jesus. That brings us to verse 4. We're stage 1 of Satan's career. Four stages to his career. Here's stage 1, verse 4. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who is about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Now, Lucifer was once a gorgeous, magnificent, beautiful angel in heaven, but he thought he was too wise and too wonderful and too mighty to be anything less than God. And he wanted to exalt himself above the stars of God. Now, we've already seen that stars in the Revelation and in the rest of the Bible can refer to the literal stars you look up and see in the heavens at night, or it's one of the idioms that God uses to refer to his angels, both holy and fallen. And it's kind of interesting because in Genesis 3, Satan suddenly shows up on the pages of Scripture. 
And you begin to think, well, where did he come from? You know that God can only create good, so how did this evil creature come into the human realm? Well, hold your finger here and go to the book of Ezekiel. If you're new to the Bible, just find the Psalms, and if you will turn to the right of the Psalms, you will soon come to Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then you will come to Ezekiel. Go to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel was what we call an exilic prophet. The prophets can be divided largely into three realms, pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic. And if you know at what time in Israel's history they're preaching, it will make a lot of sense. And of course, the book of Ezekiel is kind of a, he's a synoptic prophet of sorts where he, like Jeremiah and Isaiah, tells us much about what is going to happen at the end of time. In either case, in Ezekiel chapter 28, we learn something about the fall of this one called Lucifer. The word Lucifer means a light bearer or a shining one or literally the sun of the morning. And the devil, of course, is called Lucifer before he falls. He has no natural light in himself. He's like the moon. The moon has no light in itself. It reflects the light of the sun. Even so, Satan was called and created to reflect God. Now, to set the context, as you read Ezekiel 28, the first 10 verses describe a king that was alive in Ezekiel's day. He's the king of Tyre. And Ezekiel is called to go and to preach to him and to warn him to take up a lamentation against him. A lament in the Bible is when someone, either God or God's people, are in grief over sin, over death. And so we have the book of Lamentations, as it's called in the Greek Bible, in the Greek Septuagint. Well, here in verses 1 through 10, Ezekiel is lamenting because this king claimed to be a god when, of course, he was only a man. But then in verses 11 to 19, the prophet Ezekiel described the king that in no way could refer to any human king. The king that described, that is described beginning in verse 13 appeared in the Garden of Eden. That wasn't true of the king of Tyre. In verse 14, this king has been called the anointed cherub. That's a term for an angel. This king had free access into God's holy mountain. That's a reference to heaven. Verse 15, it says that he was blameless or sinless from his creation. That could be said of no man. So beginning in verse 11, the prophet Ezekiel be, continues to speak about the king of Tar, but he's looking past him to the power behind his throne. And what we find is that he reviews Satan's career, not only in the past in terms of how he fell, but what is going to happen in the end, which John is going to detail for us. And so in verses 11 and 19, there's no way it could refer to any human. It's just like when Jesus addresses Satan in Peter, and he says directly to Peter, Satan, get behind me. Well, even so, Ezekiel is addressing Satan, who's at work behind the king of Tyre. He's speaking of this ruler who was judged for his pride, and he was motivated by the exact same sin that made the devil the devil. And that's why theologians and pastors and commentators almost unanimously agree, though liberals in our day are dismissing it, but all the church fathers who followed after the apostles, they have one unanimous voice that this is a reference to the fall of Satan. How would they have known it? Not only by the simple reading of Scripture, but they would have understood that that's how the apostles taught it. 
So with that said, the prophet is describing this dark prince, and he describes him in three specific ways. First, notice in verses 11 to 15 that Satan was created in perfection. He's created in perfection. We read here in verse 11, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you have the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. By the way, this blows away a common fallacy where people think of Satan as both ugly and stupid. Again, sometimes he's pictured as a guy in a scaly body with cloven feet and a forked tail. That actually pictures, that's a representation of the god Pan, some of you were with, his, with me in Israel, and 12 days ago, we, we stood at a place where Jesus in Caesarea Philippi asked, who do men say that I am? It was a place where the god Pan was worshipped. And if that old ugly statue were still standing, that's what he would look like. That's how he is portrayed in ancient literature. The Romans and the Greek worshipped this god Pan. Well, Satan is not some ugly creature. He's beautiful, and he's not stupid. He's incredibly wise. Look at verse 13. You are in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering on the day that you were created. The devil is created, but God did not create a devil because when God created Satan, he was an angel. He was a cherub. Sometimes people will ask me. Recently, someone wrote me to my website, and they said, where did the devil come from? And how did, why did God create the devil to begin with? Well, God didn't create the devil. God created him perfect in beauty. He is full of wisdom. He is the anointed cherub. So he did not create him as the minister of evil. He created him perfectly, and he was the crowning achievement in the angelic realm who led the other angels in worship. He's in an exalted place. He's in Eden, the garden of God. Eden, according to Genesis 2 and 3, was the epitome of God's beautiful creation. And Satan was a reflection of that very place. Every precious stone adored him. And nine of the stones are named, nine of which are on the very breastplate that the high priest would wear into the temple. He has these precious stones. Now, we think of the name Lucifer, and we think of it as kind of evil. But actually, that's his good name. Lucifer is not an evil name. That's just a common misunderstanding of the Word of God. That's his beautiful name. That's his magnificent name. It sounds evil because of its immediate association with Satan, but that was before he fell. He was a bearer of light. In the gold, verse 13 says, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created, they were prepared. The word settings and sockets is used in the Hebrew Bible to describe musical instruments. So I think actually the King James captures the Hebrew a little bit better. They render it in gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and thy pipes was prepared in thee on the day that thou wast created. 
Lucifer did not need an instrument to praise God, for his pipes were prepared in you. They were in him. He was an instrument. He was like a great pipe organ that led the angelic realm in worship. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. His garments were decorated in an exquisite way. Again, he's the apex of God's beautiful creation. And this particular angel had certain duties. Verse 14 says, he was on the holy mountain of God. And you'll see that phrase, holy mountain of God, throughout the Old Testament. It speaks of God's rule, of God's authority, of God's government. He not only ruled in Eden, he had access to heaven, the holy mountain of God. He was the prime minister, I suppose we could say, because Paul reminds us that angels are ranked and organized. He was the prime minister of the angels that worship God, of the cherubim, the cherubim. You were the anointed cherub. Cherub is the singular of cherubim. There's no such word as cherubims any more than there's any such word as deers. And if you want to know how many cherubim, in Hebrew, there's a singular, which would be cherub. There's a dual, and there's a three or more. In the garden, when man fell, God placed cherubim, and it's a dual, which tells us there are two holy cherubim. And cherubim praised and defended the holiness and magnificence of God. And that's what Satan did. He led in that. I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain. You walked as a leader in the midst of the stones of fire. Again, a reference to God's holy angels. Look, someday I'm going to that city. It has real streets of gold. It has real walls of gems. Its foundations are, are, are made of jasper. And here was this cherub, this anointed cherub, who's set apart for God's purpose. Verse 18 says, you profaned your sanctuary. So he's like a priest serving in a sanctuary, but he rebels against God. That rebellion in verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Remember, God created Satan. He's no co-equal with God. There are not two forces that are at work in the universe. That's the pantheism of the creator of Star Wars, the good force and the evil force. That is far from biblical theology. And unfortunately, many children are being confused in our day by those movies. Don't ever think that from everlasting to everlasting, Satan has existed. He was created, and he was not created as the devil. He was created as the star of the morning. Lucifer became Satan, the father of night. And the problem with a lot of people today who fail to understand that Satan was created is that they don't understand that the God who spoke him into existence will someday speak him into oblivion. I was wondering this morning how many people really know who is going to win the battle. I hope you know. It's the Lord Jesus, and that's the point of the revelation. He is going to be victor overall. So Satan is created in perfection. Secondly, he was corrupted with pride. He was corrupted with pride. We already noted verse 15. We read, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in him. What was that unrighteousness? Well, 1 Timothy 3.16 warns us not to put a new believer 
and a place of leadership. Why? Lest they become conceited or prideful and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And so it was the sin of pride that made the devil the devil. Look at verse 16. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. That was it. That was pride at its worst. Just like the traders in Tyre, Lucifer's trade was to focus all of the praise and all of the worship to God Almighty, but instead he let some of that praise stick to his own fingers. Verse 17 says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. Again, it was pride that made the devil the devil. He thought, sure, God ought to get glory and praise and adoration, but why does he have to get it all? Why can't I have some of it? And if you get nothing else out of the message this morning, just remember that God did not create the devil as the devil. He created him as an angelic person. And if you've taken the course on angels, which most of you haven't because I gave it 20 years ago, but it is online if you want to study it. But we saw that angels are persons. They're not human persons. They're angelic persons. And one of the attributes of personhood is a man and an angel has intellect, creation, and will. And so the devil was not some puppet. He was created by God, and he chose evil over good. It was conceit that led him to be the devil. Now hold your finger here and go to the book of Isaiah. Turn back a few books to the left, to the book of Isaiah. I don't think there's any slides for these, so you might want to turn there. I think you'll find it helpful. If not, just listen really carefully if you can't find it. Uh, The way I always kept the prophet Isaiah and Ezekiel together in terms of the fall of Satan is Isaiah 14 describes the fall of Satan. And what's 14 times 2? Yes, 28. I, I put that in my mind when I was 18 years old, and I've never forgotten it. Maybe it will help you. I don't know. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Isaiah 14 is the same story, but this time it's the king of Babylon. And as in Ezekiel, if you simply apply the rules of Hebrew grammar, then you have to take the plain, normal meaning of the passage, and you discover that the latter verses can in no way apply to a human being. Let's pick it up in Isaiah 14 and verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. The King James says, O Lucifer. Now, unfortunately, some of the newer translations have taken out what we call the vocative. You see that word, O? Um, it's translating depth of emotion. And some of the new translations just leave it out altogether. Oh, Lucifer, star of the morning. That was his pre-fall name. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. Satan fell from heaven. He was cut to the earth where this great cosmic Drama is taking place in the heavenlies. And beginning in verse 13, there are five I will statements. You should circle them because they underscore Satan's pride. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. 
Lucifer already had access there, but he wants to ascend to heaven to take the place of God. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Now, other scriptures that we study, like in Revelation, tells me that the stars of God are the angels in the context. And he was already, in one sense, above the angels in his position as the anointed cherub, but he wanted to take the worship that they were giving to God. He said, I will sit on the Mount of Assembly and the recesses of the north. Throughout Scripture, the Mount of the Assembly, or maybe better rendered here in the King James, the Mount of the Congregation, he was seeking to usurp the praise that was due to God. He says in verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. 150 times in the Revelation, and we're going to see this, especially when we come to Revelation 14. The clouds are in reference not to literal fluffy white clouds, but to the Shekinah glory of God. The bottom line for this evil one is I will make myself like the Most High. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And by the way, that temptation to be like God is the same temptation he threw at Adam and Eve. Eat of the fruit. God knows you will be like him. And so Lucifer, the son of the morning, became the father of the night. Now go back to Ezekiel 28, 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. Now look carefully. The implication is that he still is beautiful and he still is wise. But now he has a warped wisdom. Now he has a blemished beauty. Don't miss it. He's not some stupid person. His wisdom is real, but it's warped. His beauty is magnificent, but it's blemished. And of course, he's not the scaly monster that people want to make him so that you won't believe in him. No, the Bible describes him as a magnificent creature. In fact, in describing his camouflage to the Corinthians, Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 11. He's describing the false teachers of his day. He says, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's talking about preachers who say they're men of God. How do you know? How do you know I'm not one of those phonies? Hmm? Sola Scriptura in context. That's the difference between a fake and the real thing. I've been crucified by evangelicals for making statements about Andy Stanley, but it's all coming true. And how very, very sad. Sola Scriptura, the devil uses the Bible, but he uses it out of context. No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Look, if Satan were to walk in this building today, we'd say, wow, what a magnificent creature, an angel from heaven. And with divine logic, therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. He's talking about Satan's servants. And Paul reminds us that very often they are in the church pulpits of America. Many will go today and will not listen to a man of God, but a servant of the evil one. People will go hoping to get a word from heaven, but they won't. Listen, he is the source of the spiritual battles that are going on. 
I was being interviewed this week by a Christian organization for their radio podcasts, and, and I said, look, I'm all behind you in terms of get out, register to vote, vote intelligently. I don't think God's called us to live in some kind of a stained glass prison. He's called us to be salt. He's called us to be light. And I think one of the great sins of our day is many Christians aren't registered to vote. And then those who vote, vote in ignorance. They don't vote intelligently. But listen, the problems this nation is facing are not political. They are spiritual. We were reminded again this week, you know, I was a scout. I grew up. I promised to be morally straight. Said it every week, the scout's pledge. Not only have they endorsed homosexuality, but this week they said as their jamboree where they bring thousands of scouts across America in July together, they'll give condoms to all the boys. Look, there's an evil that is going on in this nation that is beyond explanation. It is spiritually rooted. And Ezekiel understood this when he addressed the king of Tyre. He knew that there was one behind that throne. He's created in perfection. He's corrupted with pride. But then Ezekiel underscores, he's condemned to perdition. Look at Ezekiel 28, 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you by the multitude of your iniquities and in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you and I have turned you to ashes on the earth and the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will cease to be forever. Now he's not just looking at the past. He's looking down into the future when Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. John will elucidate that for us in Revelation 20. This one who's created in the highest place is headed to the lowest place, to hell. And let me remind you this morning as your pastor, hell was never created for people. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. Now, you can go to hell if you choose to go to hell. But if you go to hell, you'll be an intruder there. Because God didn't make hell for you. He made it for that devil and his angels. But don't think for a moment that God ever created someone to go to hell. That is a distortion of Calvinism. Even John Calvin didn't believe in double predestination. And if you go to hell, it will be all your own fault because you rejected God's provision. And we read now back here, Revelation 12. Now, I took the time to go through this. Because why? John assumes in Revelation 12, 4, you have this theology. And we live in a day of total biblical illiteracy where 80% of Americans can't name more than four of the Ten Commandments. And so I took the time to go through that so that you understand what is going on when he says here in Revelation 12, 4, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. By the way, if this number bothers you that a third of the, the angels that were created in perfection fell and rebelled against God, just remember for every fallen angel, we still have two good ones, all right? Now, beyond the Satan's past fall from heaven, I want to conclude with Satan's future fall from heaven. Satan's future fall from heaven. Now, much to many's surprise, John reveals a future battle that is yet to take place in heaven, and he underscores three truths about this battle. First, the 
participants in the battle. We read in verse 7, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. Now, before we move on to the end result of the battle, we're informed as to who's participating. There's this one called Michael, of course, who's on God's side. And names are very important to God in the Bible. Many of the names that God gives of himself tell us what he is like. And of course, God, the Bible tells us, has every star in the sky named and there's hundreds of billions of them. I can promise you if God has every star named, which the Bible says, he has every angel star named as well. Someone called on the Bible line not long ago, and they said, do we know how many angels there are? And my response was, well, I can't give it an exact number, but I can tell you right now there's a lot. Do you remember when we were back in Revelation 5 and verse 11? I know it seemed ages ago, but let me dust off your mind. John writes, then I looked, he's talking about the throne room of God, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. This verse says myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Do you remember? That's the same description of the throne room that Daniel gives in Daniel chapter 7. Let me read it to you. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open. Now, the word myriad is kind of like the word tithe in both Hebrew and Greek. It's a mathematical term, just like a tithe literally means a tenth. The word myriad is a Greek and Hebrew mathematical term that in both languages means 10,000. And so the King James and the ESV interpret it. They say, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And of course, the number given in verse 11 is even larger because beyond the myriads and myriads, there are thousands of thousands. So the word myriad means 10,000. And understand, too, that unlike we have the word trillion and million and billion and I don't know how far they go, quadzillion or whatever, but the largest unit, mathematical unit in the ancient world was a myriad or 10,000. And when you wanted to describe as in many pieces of literature outside of the Bible that I read this week, you wanted to describe a number that was just beyond count, being able to count. You said myriads upon myriads. So if you just take it literally, 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. That's a pretty big number. And then you have thousands upon thousands in addition to them. And this is just the throne room of God, remember. In addition, you have all those angels that are out on duty, holy angels, we'll look at some in just a moment, who are out waging war against fallen angels. Then beyond those angels that are out in spiritual battle, some are here today, the Bible says, in 1 Corinthians 11, they're watching us worship. You know that? You're being watched this morning. You ought to pay attention. You ought to be good now. They're learning from us, the Bible says. The congregation is a lot bigger than you realize today. Add to that, Matthew says, Jesus speaking, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
For I say to you that there are angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. People sometimes say, do children have a guardian angel? The answer is no. They have guardian angels. They have more than one angel. Of course, they need them, some of these kids. Look, if there's 1.9 billion children on the earth, and that's what we're told, and each have at least two, then you have all the angels who are at warfare in the heavenly places and all those in the throne room. What I'm trying to say is myriads upon myriads is an impossible number to count. And out of this incredible number, the revelation reveals to us that one-third of the angels of God rebelled against the Lord God. Now, with all that said, with hundreds of millions of angels, only four are named in the Word of God. One that we're reading today in our text, Michael. He appears at least five times in the Bible, in the book of Daniel, in the book of Jude, and then, of course, here in the Revelation. Then, of course, there's Lucifer, and he has two names, his pre-fall name, Lucifer, and his post-fall name, Satan, along with a number of other titles. Then, of course, beyond that, there's Gabriel, one of the holy angels of God. He's named at least four times in the Bible, in the book of Daniel and the Gospel of Luke. So two holy angels, and then there are two fallen angels, Lucifer slash Satan, and one that we've already studied in Revelation chapter 9, the angel Abaddon or Paul, and he gives us both the Hebrew and Greek name. So here's Michael, El, God, of course. Who is like God? What a great name that God would give him. Who is like God? That's what his name declares. No one is like God, his name shouts. And he always appears in the Bible in relation to the Hebrew people. In the book of Daniel, he's called the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. He's guarding the nation Israel today. Most Jews today are in unbelief. But there's coming a day when the Jewish people are going to repent. The Scripture says by the prophet Zechariah, they will look on him whom they have pierced. They're going to call Yeshua Lord. And so here's Michael who guards over the people of Israel. We were there last week, and in the middle of the night, we heard a sonic boom, and later to find out that they dispatched one of the F-35s that our nation gave them and blew that missile right out of the sky. And I'm sure Michael was there helping them too, helping them aim that thing. There's an unseen conflict that is going on in the heavenly places. Hold your finger here. Go to Daniel 10. And I want you to see this unseen conflict that is at work. Daniel 10, look at verse 10. Then behold, a hand touched me. He's describing an angel in the context who is unnamed. Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I came in response to your words. Prayer, by the way, is a form of humbling. I hope this week you humbled yourself before God. I hope maybe your day started in humility, in prayer. 
And so the Bible tells us that here's Daniel earnestly, humbly, seeking God by prayer and by sacrifice for three entire weeks. And the moment he uttered his prayer, the Bible says it was heard. Isaiah 65 says, it will come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Our prayers travel faster than the speed of light. And even before we can get them out of our mouths, God hears them. But in this particular case, it took three weeks for God to answer the prayer. Now, there are different reasons given into the Bible why God sometimes delays the answer to a prayer. Sometimes we ask amiss, and God withholds the answer to give us time to see that what we're asking for is really not part of His plan and His will for our life. Sometimes it takes time because God uses natural means in which to answer the prayer. So remember the Shunammite woman who came to Elisha, and he said, one year from now, you'll have a baby. It took some time for that prayer to be answered. Or sometimes the spiritual conditions aren't right in our heart. The prayer request is good, but God can't give it because of other issues he wants us first to address. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. For your sin, Isaiah said, has made a separation between you and your God so that he does not hear. So it's a reminder to me that God's denials... God's delays are not always his denials. He has reasons sometimes. But what is given here in Daniel chapter 10 is unique. Uh, The Lord Jesus taught us to persevere in prayer. And I hope you persevere in prayer. Don't give up. Keep praying. Don't quit. But God had a reason on this occasion, though Daniel is persevering as to why he didn't immediately answer. Look at verse 13 of chapter 10. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left with the kings of Persia. The context, he's not dealing, obviously, about human princes, but angelic princes, one of whom we've already identified, Michael, the great archangel. So Daniel had asked God for his help, and God on this occasion realizes that he needs to give direct revelation, and he's going to give direct revelation through one of his holy angels, Michael. But on the way, Michael experiences this spiritual conflict, this holy angel with an evil angel for the course of 21 days. And it's a reminder to me that the Bible teaches there's an unseen war that is going on in the spirit places, that our real struggle is not against flesh and blood, that the real battle is spiritual. For our struggle, Paul says, is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and rulers and principalities and world forces that are at work in in the heavenly realm. So here's Daniel praying for three weeks, and I should say parenthetically, because some of my charismatic friends use this, but grossly misapply the text that this is the biblical justification for us to go around and bind territorial demons. And so they cast demons out of every potted plant and go around and cast demons out of different neighborhoods. We're never commanded anywhere in the Word of God to do that. Our power is not in ourselves. Our power is in the 
preached word of God. It is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. Nowhere are we called to name demons or demonic territories and to bind those territories. But you see, that's exciting. That's what people thrive on, the flesh. They love dramatic things. And that amasses a crowd. And yes, it's much more fun to walk around some neighborhood, I suppose, and to cast the demon out of the subdivision to spend three, than to spend three hours in preparation to teach a group of children. We're not told to pray for more angels to come down and to help us, but we are told to pray that God would raise up workers for the harvest. You know, the harvest in Beaufort County is great. But the laborers are still very few. We need to pray that God would give us more laborers, and we need to put some feet to that prayer. What did your labor look like in the last week? Did your labor in the last week in terms of bringing the gospel, was there any labor? Look, it's hypocrisy for me to pray for laborers if I'm not out there in the field trying to labor. But the ultimate battle is unseen. And so we read here, back here in Revelation 12 and verse 7, there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and his angels waged war. Uh, This is truly a battle between equals. The dragon, of course, represents Satan, who is not the counterpart of God because God has no counterpart. But if I suppose there were any angel that would be the counterpart of Satan, it would be Michael. In fact, he's the only angel who's called an archangel and is the only angel in all the Bible, Jude 9, who directly confronts the evil one. And even there, he says, the Lord rebuke you. Satan is given a number of names here, four to be specific, but they really help us to understand who this dragon is. He's called the serpent. He's called the devil. He's called Satan. The dragon, verse 3 calls him the red dragon, and we saw the word red is the word peros that God uses to describe death and murder and blood, and that's what Satan is all about. The thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. You think this kid who went out and pulled out a gun this week in that classroom, a middle school student. I mean, it just seems like we have one a week. I'll tell you, there's evil forces at work. These kids are growing up on these violent video games, and Christian dads are right alongside playing them with them. And we wonder that we can somehow break the law of God and not be broken. And as a nation, we said no to God, and we're in the third stage of Romans 1. God let them go, and with every week that goes by, it seems to get more intense. He's the red dragon. He is a murderer from the beginning, Jesus said. John refers to him in verse 9 as the serpent of old. Old is the word archaikos. We get our word archaic from it. Archaos. He's not changed. John is saying he is that old serpent. The one that you saw all the way back in the Garden of Eden thousands of years ago. That old snake in verse 9, he's also called the devil, diabolo. It means to slander, literally. He defames. He's the slanderer. Verse 10 calls him the accuser of the brethren. By the way, every time you hear Satan's voice in the Bible, you hear him slander. You only actually hear Satan speak three times in the Bible. 
The first time he speaks is in Genesis where he slanders God before man. The second time he speaks is there in heaven where he slanders man before God as he says, Job, he's a joke. He only loves you because you bought him. The third time he speaks, Matthew 4, Luke 4, as he slanders the God word, he undermines the character and purposes of God, but he's also called Satan, Satanos. It means adversary. And so we have a deceiver of the whole world. Notice beyond the participants, the consequence of this battle. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Now, the Bible is clear that while Lucifer has already fallen, he has a new name, Satan, who has limited access to the throne. And you remember that, I hope, from the book of Job, where he comes into the presence of God. But on this occasion, Satan is cast out of heaven forever, and he will never go back. His role is the prince of the power of the air. When is this going to happen? We'll see it. It's already been... referenced in the previous verses with the 1260 days happens right in the middle of the tribulation period when the devil's man goes in and commits the abomination of desolation there in that rebuilt temple by the way we went to the temple institute and they said phase one is all done we saw all the architectural plans we saw the furniture all the garments Phase one is all done. They're ready for phase two. And on that day in Jerusalem, thousands of young people were going through the streets singing, we want to build the temple. We want to build the temple. I taped it. I recorded it. I had to. Well, there's coming a time when that evil antichrist commits the abomination of desolation. And Satan at the same time will be cast to the earth and there'll be double wrath. Not only the wrath of God, but Satan and all of his fallen demons are going to wage havoc on this world like you've never, ever seen. Verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. This fall is yet in the future. Please note, Satan who deceives the whole world was thrown out of the earth and his angels, that's a third of all the stars. You don't want to be around planet earth in that time and you don't have to be. Finally, notice the victory from the battle. The victory from the battle, we read now in verse 10 and I conclude. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night. Now verse 10 tells me that we're being accused. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if even as I preach this morning, the devil is saying, will you look at that Carl Brogy, that scumbag? How can you use him? He is a slanderer. He is an accuser. Day and night, the Bible says. But in the midpoint of the tribulation, God is going to say, Michael, the time of accusation is up. Go to war. And the devil and a third of his angels will be cast down to the earth, banished forever from the court of heaven. No more accusations, but he's doing it today. But thank God we have one who prays for us. You ever think about the fact that Jesus is praying for you? Paul says, 
Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, he has died, who is raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who intercedes for us. Look, if, if Jesus is interceding for you, I don't know what that does for you. It does a lot for me. I don't want to fail him. I want to be the answer to his prayer. And so he mocks us. He laughs at us. But Jesus, with his nail-scarred hands, intercedes for us. That's what we sing. Matt led us in that song many a, many a Sunday morning. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me fence depart. How are we going to apply this passage? Number one, let me suggest that you remember today that Satan hates you and he wants to defeat you. He hates you. He hates you. You say, why does he hate me? Because you are his enemy. Why am I his enemy? Because you're made in the image of God. The Bible teaches that only humans are made in the Imago Dei. In fact, we're made higher than the angels. Someday the Bible says we will judge the angels. Now think your way through this. Satan cannot get directly to God. And evil people have always known that if you can't get at someone, then you hurt somebody who that someone loves. And that's why Satan is after you today. When I stood in Bethlehem 10 days ago, I thought about what had taken place. And the babies that were slaughtered there. And Herod had all the babies. Two years and under killed. Why? Because it took about six months for the wise men to get from the east to the house where that young couple was. And he wanted to make sure that every baby was dead. But those were babies made in the image of God. The Canaanite people who were a demon-possessed people killed babies. Pharaoh, an evil fallen man, killed little Hebrew babies or wanted to. Herod had the babies in Bethlehem destroyed. And today, millions, 60 million Americans are missing. 600 million around the world are missing. And yesterday in the streets of Ireland, they were cheering that they now can abort little babies 12 weeks and under legally. Listen, Satan has his reign of terror And it is so huge that lest you forget that he absolutely hates you, you will yield to some of his work. Secondly, we must recognize that he is in the, that in the invisible realm, he is very much at work. See, the problems that we're facing today are not political or social, or racial, or educational, or philosophical. They are spiritual problems. And spiritual problems require spiritual weapons that God has given his people. 
Luther, I have a love-hate relationship with him, but he was so right when he said, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. Armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Don't take Satan lightly. You have a cruel enemy. Third and finally, no matter how bad Satan may show himself, in the end, we win. This chart reminds us again of those four stages. We looked at today his fall from heaven, from Isaiah and Ezekiel. Jesus said, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. Then will come his fall to the earth when he's forever excluded out of the heavenly realm. We're going to study later on his fall into the abyss where for a thousand years he'll be locked up. At the end of the thousand years, he'll be shortly released, but then he will fall forever into the lake of fire. And people who don't know Jesus, for there is salvation in no one else, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. People who don't know Jesus will be there right with him for millions and billions of years. Now, God didn't create hell for people. And if you go to hell, it's because you committed the same sin that Satan committed, the sin of pride, a sin of pride that would not allow you to humble your heart before God and to call upon a Savior who loves you. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you today for your word. Thank you for its truth. Help us to hear what you've said. This is not simply what you have said or what you will even do in the future, but this scripture is profitable for every saint today that knows you and loves you. So help us to be more than those who just hear the word. Help us to be those who are willing to obey. Father, I pray today for some dear person within the sound of my voice. Maybe they're listening on the internet or through some radio station, but they are uncertain that heaven is their home, and you love them, your son died for them, and you have no way to save them but through the blood-stained cross of Jesus. Thank you that whosoever will may come. Thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Help someone, Father, in humility to turn away from their pride, to say, Jesus, I cannot be my own Savior. Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, may we who have made that confession be faithful with the best news we can ever share. Help us to be good stewards of the gospel, even in this brand new week, forgetting what lies behind, pressing on to what is before us. Help us this week to love people with the love of Christ, to look for opportunities to win them to your son. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.